giving you greetings this morning from Myerstown, all the way up north. Glad to be with you once again today. Now, I guess most of you know Brother Tim lives just down the hill from me. Uh, I so appreciated the selections of songs. Matter of fact, that song by Count Zinzendorf was the first time I've ever sang that song today. I don't know that I've ever seen that one before. But uh, that just so fits with what we're planning to share, his vision. Uh, it was, of course, one of the leaders of the Moravians. This fall, we had the privilege as a family to travel to Lake Nakamixon. Who knows where that is? Ever hear of Lake Nakamixon? Oh, my. That is a great little find. It's just south of Quakertown. And uh, there are ten little log cabins that the state owns right along this big lake. The lake is 1,400 acres. And a pretty private setting. And for under $400 a week, you can rent a cabin. And it does have indoor plumbing and electric, so you're not going quite as primitive as you might. But uh, uh, the price is pretty reasonable. But from there, we went to visit Bethlehem, which was the heart of Moravian outreach to the the Lenni Lenape Indians here in Pennsylvania. And from there we went to uh, Ellis Island and Statue of Liberty, and it just put us at a location. We were at Pennsbury Manor, which would have been William Penn's uh, estate down along the Delaware. We were in close proximity to a lot of things to do as a family and uh, historical sites to see. Today I'd like to direct your attention to the book of Luke And uh, looking at a parable that Jesus gave, a very familiar one, one of the reasons it's so familiar is it shows up in three of the synoptic gospels in slight variations, but basically the same concept each time. And I think many of us would recognize that by the signs of the times, we're getting closer to the end, and in reality, uh, we're closer than we ever were, right? We don't know when that is, but we're closer than we ever were. Now, in all fairness, as a historian, my forefathers 500 years ago felt it has to be now. It has to be soon. When they were suffering in Europe and there was such hopelessness that prevailed, uh, it has to be coming now. And yet it hasn't come yet. On the other hand, I think it's wise for us to see and to be aware of the signs of the times. Some of you know that I am uh, a follower, a student of what goes on in the Middle East. Um, There is a temple in waiting right now. There is uh, stones, six-ton, four cornerstones for that temple that have already been cut and anointed. Uh, There are the pieces put together for the interior of that temple, including a $2 million gold menorah, the candlestick. It's finished. It was finished two years ago. And so... The attempt has even been made to take those four cornerstones and place them where they belong on the original foundation. And that attempt was stopped by the Israeli police because it was recognized that that would usher in the Third World War. Because where that temple needs to go is currently occupied by the Dome of the Rock, second or third, debatably, most holy place in Islam. And so until that Dome of the Rock is removed, the temple cannot be built. The garments for the priests have been made. The men have been trained. The Levites know how to do the sacrifices. All is in readiness. 
That wasn't true 500 years ago. The nations of the world are gathered to the Middle East right now. I don't know if you're aware of that. But the little country of Yemen has become the Vietnam of our day. Uh, My gray hair reveals that I was alive during Vietnam and saw what was going on in that time. Really what ultimately took place was the superpowers of the world could not afford to have a major confrontation directly because there were enough missiles to literally blow both countries out of the water. And so they hated each other and they despised what each other stood for in government principle and yet they both recognized they couldn't afford a major outbreak between the two. And so they fought in a roundabout way through a little country called Vietnam. And for years, a horrible war drug on in that place called Vietnam. And to this day, they have hardly recovered. That was over in, who knows, what year? 67? No. Turn it around. 76. 76 was the year that the... uh, The last airlift was taken out of Saigon, uh, and that only rings in my mind because I I got a new brother that way uh, as they made the last airlift out of Saigon as the Viet Cong had surrounded Saigon. Before it actually fell to the Viet Cong, the Marines airlifted, brought people out like crazy, and a lot of what they brought out were orphans. So all of a sudden, there was a huge influx of Vietnamese orphans dumped in the U.S., and basically... If you had been pre-approved for an orphan for an orphan before that for adoption, you said the word and in two days you had one. So we had been pre-approved. I have a Korean sister, and uh, so that in '76 I also got a, a Vietnamese brother. Um, I say this because what took place was these outside powers were all working together. The Soviets were supporting the North Vietnamese. The U.S. were supporting the South Vietnamese. And so the fighting was happening in Vietnam, allegedly between differences that they already had. But the real ultimate thing was it was the U.S. fighting the USSR. That is happening right now again in Yemen. Yemen is a little tiny country, the poorest country in the Saudi area. It's at the bottom, southern tip of the, the Saudi Peninsula, right against the Red Sea. A lot of history happened right there. The Queen of Sheba, who came to visit Solomon, was from Yemen. Um, they can tell you all about that if you talk to Yemeni people. Um, there are a lot of things that have taken place over the years. But right now, this little highly mountainous desert property that isn't very big at all, poorest country, is now the battlegrounds. And the Saudi Arabians do not want the Al-Houthi who are coming in there and trying to take over. They originally had less than 10%, one one state out of 22, okay, in that country. Today, all 22 states have fallen to the Al-Houthi by force, supported by Iran, who's supported by the USSR and China with intelligence and finances. So the Saudis, who didn't want them coming in, uh, are trying to keep them out, but don't want to send land forces. Very, very mountainous, hard, hard place to fight. 
there are more guns than people by three times in Yemen. Everybody owns many guns, including machine guns, and that's been that way before there was a war. And so it's a very dangerous place to just show up in military uniform, especially if it happens to be the wrong one. And so what the Saudis have done is just taken huge volumes of money's worth of bombs and just daily coming in and just bombing it, bombing it, bombing it. And basically today all the cities of Yemen have been flattened, flattened. And modern times, and maybe you've not heard this till just now, but in modern times, I don't know that there's been a war where there's been so much suffering as there is right now in Yemen. One bottle of water, a bottle of water, 50 American dollars, if you can find it. It's an extremely dry place. Until just last week when a hurricane hit three main states and gave tremendous flooding, at least in part of the country. This place now has the Saudis, the Emirates, Oman, Jordan, Egypt, all supporting these finances for the bombings against Iran, Russia, and, the, and the, uh, China. And the U.S. has cast in its lot and is giving it finances and its intelligence as well. So um, it seems like Somehow the armies of the world are all gathered over there already. Our boats are afloat in the waters just offshore if needed. And so uh, what would it take? What would it take? It would take one radical to set off one bomb in one mosque and we'd be there. If the end of time is near, what in the world are you doing? If you really believed that the end of time were close, I ask you the question today, what in the world are you doing? Luke chapter 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Okay, this was his motive for giving this parable. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained thee five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore, then gavest thou not my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. 
For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Jesus gave some instruction to his people who were curious about, when is this kingdom coming? You know, we want, we want Israel to reign. When is it coming? The first thing uh, that I notice is that in verses 11 through 13 there, he gave them a specific command in this parable, the king who left, and that was, occupy until I come. I've given you something to do. Keep yourself busy with it. I'm not telling you when I'm coming. It's not important for you to know when I'm coming. It's important that you would be busy with the business that I have given you until I come. And when I come, I come. Occupy until I come. That's an important message to the church. I'd like us to think about this. Does that occupying include frantically searching the scriptures for a date? Now, I know you didn't buy into September 30th, right? You didn't believe that. But they tell me that uh, some local radio weather forecaster was mentioning about it, that uh, he had heard the end of the world was September 30th, and he was, had to say that it was supposed to be rainy that day. So that's sad that it has to be rainy the last day of the world. And he says, I don't really put any stock in any of that. But he says, you might just want to, if you have any bills due on the 30th, wait until October 2nd or 3rd to pay them. And that's a little amusing, but it's not really funny. Because what these people do that set these dates, the professing Christians that set these dates, is give the world much reason to blaspheme God and mock the prophecies of Scripture. And so, let's be done with all that. Somebody gives you a date, say, I know it's not going to happen then. (laughs) I know it's going to happen, but I know it's not going to happen then. I'm not the least bit scared Even if it happens, I'm not scared. What is this frantic looking for a time and a date like I somehow have to get ready? Live every day like it is the last day and then it won't matter when it comes. Occupy until I come. Does it mean frantically stockpiling food and preparing bunkers against doomsday? Now we can say, what? I'm going to tell you what, I've got customer in Utah. I make a a, a chili soup. Okay, it's made with bulgur wheat and kidney beans and has all the seasonings. Everything's in it complete. And all you do is you boil water and add this in 20 minutes. It's ready to eat. And you would think you're eating meat. Most people don't realize there's not any meat in it. But you, it's a good little product we developed some years ago. But anyhow, I have a customer that buys two pallets at a time of that. And it goes out to Utah where it gets packed in little Mylar bags to store up for the end. And they're selling it to customers all over that are storing up for the end. Now, I want to tell you, if you like my chili, eat it now. It's better fresh. (laughs) We're not called to be preparing bunkers and stockpiling food. And so let's say that I make a bunker and I stockpile a whole bunch of food. And when I get to the final collapse and chaos that everybody is predicting will come before the end... Tell me, will you share it with your neighbor or are you going to keep it for yourself? What would Jesus do? 
Will you be, I'm for me, who are you for? How about the stockpile of guns and ammunition? You know, when you go to the local sportsman goods shop, you can hardly buy ammunition because it's all being grabbed up as they put it on the shelves. I don't know what it means, but ever since President Obama was first elected, ammunition's been in short supply. And so will we use ammunition and guns to protect the food that we've stockpiled in our bunkers? Is that what the end's going to look like for the Christian church? I hope not. I would hope not. It'd be better to die in public. Forget about the hiding place. Eat your last bowl of chili and die. There's no reason for us to think that way because we're called by the king to occupy until he comes. And that is not what he told us to be occupied with. Some are moving off grid, going to remote locations, sitting upon a hilltop somewhere and waiting for whatever that date was that was picked. How foolish. How foolish. I think we need to refocus and stop operating by fear and start operating by faith that we would occupy until he comes. There are some who are trading in all their cash to buy up gold. Now, the foolish thing is, when chaos would come and an economic worldwide collapse would occur, how much gold can you eat? The guys with the chili have it better off. How much gold can you eat? Let's understand what the pounds are in this, power, power, in this parable. In several of the accounts, the term talent is used. Both of these terms, pound and talent, are old English terms that need to be understood. They were simply money. That's what they were. Now, I know we hear the children and like to hear them singing, One talent have I to take to the sky, while others are blessed with ten of the best. You've ever heard that song? But that's not the talents we're talking about. We're talking about money. That's the parable. Now, what does that money mean? Well, obviously, I don't think it means money as far as the relationship in the allegorical sense to what Jesus was teaching about the kingdom. But it has to do with the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The true riches that you and I could possibly be endowed with, we already heard about today. We are so blessed. We have the ten talents. We have the ten pounds. They've already been delivered to us. The question is, what are we doing with them? That's all that needs to be asked. And it's not money. You know, the, the, the story was money. But what he was relating it to is not pertaining to our money. I think it's wise to be good stewards with money. But what he's really relating to is the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it's critical for us to get that one. That is true wealth. Now, we'll notice that... <clears throat> In fear and distrust, there was one who hid that talent or the pound that he received. It was in fear and distrust. He tucked it away. He didn't do a thing with it. He just had it, but he kept it. He kept it to himself. We notice in this parable that when the Lord comes, the king comes and returns he calls for these servants to come before him. And two of them seem to be joyous about coming before him and explaining what happened. You know what? You gave me five and I traded with them and here's another five. You gave me ten and I traded with them and here's another ten. 
And I'm glad to see you, king. I'm glad you've come back today. But there was another one. He had the same lord, the same king, came back the same day. But his attitude toward that king was very, very different. Look at verses down at verse 20. Another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. You see, his attitude towards the king was, you're shrewd. You're a hard man. You're hard to deal with. I was afraid that if I did something, I would mess it up. And so rather than do anything wrong, I just did nothing. Here, take back what you gave me. I didn't really want it anyway. Now, remembering that in reality, Jesus was talking about the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. When the Lord comes in the final day, do I plan to accuse the Lord on that judgment day? Or do I truly love the king? Will I be glad to see him? Will I hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy Lord? Or will I hear other words? Do I truly love the king? What is it that he has commanded me to do? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. What is it that he has commanded? What is the occupying till he comes? Turn with me to Matthew. And I know that you know this. This is a verse that gets used again and again and again. But it's good for us to be reminded. And I want to just show us, again, numerous places in the scripture where these command was given. If you love me, keep my commandments. But here in Matthew 28, some of the last words that Jesus said while on earth to his disciples. Verse 18, Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye, therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So occupying is not done alone, is it? I will be with you unto the end of the world. But occupying has to do with a sharing of the gospel of the kingdom as we have opportunity. And he doesn't give us any limitations. His kingdom spans all nations. All the world is his. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. How much more the souls of the men? How much more? And so we need not fear the task. The task looks huge. But we need not fear it. Mark chapter 16. Mark recording similar statements. Uh, Mark chapter 16 and beginning to read verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. What a blessing. Again, the call to go. Go into all the world. And to preach the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. Luke chapter 24. Luke's recording of, again, similar words. 
Luke chapter 24 and verses 44 through 49. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things and behold I send the promise of my father upon you but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye endure and be endued with power from on high. Okay, again the command... All these things have been fulfilled. The kingdom, in essence, has come. Now, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before church. Um, is Brother Rick premillennialist or is he amillennialist? Yes. Yes. Brother Rick's panmillennialist. I'll be very happy to see how it all pans out. Okay? So, we don't want to get in that debate or argument. The point is this. There's a kingdom that's coming, I'm convinced, but there's a kingdom that's now, and we must be striving for that kingdom now, or we won't be ready for the kingdom to come. And that's the end of the debate. (laughs) There doesn't need to be any any fighting over that one. I know traditionally Anabaptists have held to one stand, but you know there is some promises in God's word that we have to reckon with, and we can't write off. They're there, and we have to do something with those promises. And so I think that it's wise for us not to get into camps and not to become divisive over prophecy, but for us to be alive and awake and thinking and occupying until that day comes, until Jesus does come again. Well, they were called to go in and preach repentance and remission of sins. I I love that terminology, remission. I have a next-door neighbor. He was diagnosed about 10 or 12 years ago as having prostate cancer. And when the doctors worked with him, they gave him three options. And he told them, I don't like any of your options. And so he sought the help of a nutritionist. And this man did not have a healthy diet. He was a union man, worked for Hershey Foods all his life, eating candy bars. Uh, he did not have a healthy diet. Well, this man soon went over his, his blood tests and everything else gave him recommendations for change of diet. And he took him seriously. All right? And so he did make a change in his diet. You know, that man's cancer has been in remission for 12 years. For 12 years. Just by changing his diet. He began eating all organic meats and uh, a lot of organic vegetables. And uh, by the change of diet, he stopped what was there. Now, you can't change your diet to take care of your sin problem, but there is a remedy to put sin in remission. It does not have to actively continue to work in us. It does not have to. And so that message to be preached throughout all the world is an extremely important message because the world really does long for peace. They just don't have a clue where to find it. They don't have a clue. You have a clue. You have the answer. You have the recipe, if you will, for peace. First, peace with God. Then peace with yourself. You know, there's people out there sitting on yoga mats making all kinds of moves trying to figure out how to get peace. I got news for you. You don't need a yoga mat for this. No purchases necessary. All right? Peace. The real peace. The peace that passeth understanding. The peace that carries through tribulation, turmoil, and even persecution. 
peace. Turn with me yet to Acts chapter 1. Talking about what did Jesus command and what is it that we're to be occupied with until he comes. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Again, they're wanting to know when this kingdom's going to be set up. And he doesn't tell them. Look what he says. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, you don't have to say, Brother Rick told you that. You can say, I read it in the Bible. It's not for you to know. Don't worry about it. Live each day as though it were the last And you'll always be ready. Which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the othermost parts of the earth. That's occupying till he comes. Being witnesses for him until he comes. Now, I know in some old order conservative settings, if I go to town with my carriage and I have my broadband hat on, I, I'm being a witness. But is that enough? Are you satisfied with that? Is that what spoke to your heart and soul and life? Now, I'm not taking a slam at anybody, but I'm going to tell you what. I grew up in Lancaster County in a non-conservative home. And I don't know that I ever had one conservative person that Lancaster County has lots of them ever come and try to win me to Jesus Christ. Not one in my life. And I am convinced that that needs to be different. I'm convinced that it has to be different. What is the message of the New Testament? And what is the message, especially the book of Acts? It is the message of men and women of the kingdom. They loved Christ Jesus and they acted accordingly. It did change their behavior. They did have a holy life. There was something different and peculiar about these people. So that I'm not finding any fault with at all. Matter of fact, if we lose that, we've lost a big thing. But if we think that that alone is enough, then we're missing the point. Because being a witness includes opening your mouth and sharing the truth in love. They lived and died to be a witness. Do we blame people do that? We live for lots of things. But would we live and die to be a witness? Most of us have a copy of Martyr's Mirror in our house. They lived and they died to be a witness. Many of them would be a pretty big challenge to us if they were to stand here before us today. It's important for us to get a vision and renew a vision. The early church, every man was an evangelist. He didn't count on the preacher to do it or the deacon to do it or it was someone else's job, special team that goes out, you know, maybe once a week or whatever. It was every man's privilege to be an evangelist. What in the world are we doing? That was my original question. I ask it again. 
Now, some of you have seen the little book uh, Brother Gary Miller put out, Global Village. Have you seen that? That is great. If you don't have a copy, please get one. It's going to be much, much more extensive than what I'm going to try to show us today. But I'm curious. Now, you're all right here at Shaperstown. Anybody know what the population of Shaperstown is? Is it? Nobody knows. Lyndon, did I ever do any demographic studies here? Okay. Nobody has a clue. How about Myerstown? I'm from there, and I don't know either, so I'm just equally as guilty. Don't find out. Let's just say that we had a village. Now, Myerstown is bigger than Shaperstown. Let's say that we have a village of 3,500 people. You know, eventually, if I lived right in the town, Myerstown, just doing business, I may not get to know everybody, but I would soon see about everybody in town. If there were 3,500 people, it would be reasonable to think that you could soon see everybody. I'd like to take Gary's concept and put it down to where we can get a grip. What would our global village... Now, we already heard that our world is shrinking. Why is our world shrinking? It's not global warming. Technology and infrastructure. Okay. Now, here's a, here's a, a perfect live example. Tim, when you settled in Avuna, could you call home on the cell phone? Satellite phone for a dollar eighty a minute. Now, that was in what year? 2007. Six. 2006. When I got to Haiti in 2007, we didn't have a satellite phone. We had a radio that went beep, 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 beep. And if it was cloudy, your message did not go through. And you didn't know if your message got through because it was cloudy. You didn't get a return response either. And so communicating took days to send an email by the little beeps. And by the time I was leaving in 2000, they brought a satellite phone. It looked like a big briefcase, and you opened it up. And uh, when you talked to somebody on that thing, and it was just too, it was outrageously expensive in that day, uh, we couldn't afford to use it that way. We only used it for emails because you could open up in about 30 seconds. You could zip a whole bunch of them across. But um, that thing, it sounded like you were talking through a PVC pipe when you talked to somebody you know, at the other end. And now today, in Avuna, you can make a phone call, right? Two cents a minute. Okay, so little remote Ivuna, untouched, unreached people 15 years ago now are very touched and very reached. Not necessarily with the gospel, but <laughs> very touched and very reached with lots of things. Um, and so it is in many little remote areas all over the world. And so our world has shrunk. The capability to communicate has really shrunk. And so we're living in a global society, a global world. I get emails from all over the world every day. Most of them are scammers. Most of them are scammers. But they do come from all over the world. And how they figured to find me, I don't know. And they know exactly what to say, too. Dear Christian brother, you know, I am a rich widow from Ghana whose doctor husband passed away. We had no children, and we're looking for someone to uh, find good ways of applying $5 million to the kingdom of God. They know all the right things to say. Wrong. Delete. Okay. Let's say we have a global village of 3,500 people. What would that actually look like? Well, let's start with the biggest group. What is it? What's the biggest group? No, we're not going, we're not going to go by race. I should explain this. We're talking just by religion today. Just by religion. The biggest group would be Muslim. 
Now, you're going to understand once we get a little further, because I do make a division here, or there would be one group bigger. But Muslim is 822 of those 3,500 neighbors of yours in your global village. 22%. So roughly, if you were to line up the entire world, every fourth person is a Muslim. Every fourth one. It is a force to be reckoned with. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. And it's the fastest growing religion in North America by numbers. Now, not by percentage, but by numbers. Wicca, witchcraft, is the fastest growing by percentage. And so it's not looking very bright out there, is it? A matter of fact, it's looking a little dark. If Islam and Wicca are the two fastest growing religions, we've got a problem that we better reckon with. Okay, what's the next number? We've got 655 Catholics. Now, have any of you ever tried to witness to a Muslim? It's not easy. It's not easy. They know their religion, and they are committed to their religion. When I came home from Dallas here a few weeks ago, I got stuck in the airport of Philadelphia, and I noticed five of the airport workers, five young black men, maybe in their 20s, and all of a sudden, they stopped their work, took off their hats, went over and pulled out a rug, and right there in the airport waiting area at the gates... They got down and prayed. How many of us have done that lately? Hi. Do we stop to pray? Well, maybe we do. Maybe we're praying a lot while we're sitting in that airplane, especially when our plane gets canceled. But um, how many of us care if somebody knows that we're praying? All right, how many have tried to witness to a Roman Catholic? Now, they're all over the board. They are all over the board. There are some of them that are very, very devoutly religious and believe all the traditions their church has taught them. There are some that are so nominal they hardly know what their church even teaches. But there's a lot of them, 655 in this 3,500-person community. Okay, let's talk about the next group. Next largest group would be, I'm going to put NR for non-religious, atheist. And we'll say humanist. So, how many of you ever try to witness to someone from that group? No religion at all. You, you bump into them all the time, right? No religion at all. Or atheist. Atheist. I like to deal with atheists. They, they always want to tell me that they don't believe what they can't see. I say, stop breathing. You don't believe in air anyway. Stop breathing. The reality of saying I don't believe in what I can't see is, is not a reality at all. Okay? Then I usually go to my hand. Do you believe that there's whole colonies of life and activity on that hand? The bacterial world. Microbes. If I sneeze in my hand, you won't shake my hand. No, you won't. Because you know that there's something that just went on that hand, even though you can't see it. And you believe completely, you put faith in the fact that there is an unseen world of microbes. So why is it so far out and bizarre to think there's an unseen world of spirits? Okay, what's the next group? Close on their heels. Hindu. Huge population. Many of them we will never get to India to see. But many of them are coming here to see you. Do you ever stop to witness to someone at the gas station? 
when you're paying? Some of them are Hindu. Not all of them. Matter of fact, in the north here, I don't know how it is in the south, but in the north here, around Myerstown and above, they're mostly Sikh. Whole nother religion. And it's good to learn about the Sikhs. The Sikhs have some things righter than the Hindus. We'll put it that way. <laughs> they do believe in one God only instead of three million. Okay, 525 Hindus. 438. What's next? Protestants. That covers a big territory, doesn't it? How many of you ever tried to witness to a Protestant? <laughs> and you'll say, that's a bizarre thing to ask, isn't it? No, it's not, actually. It's not. You know, there are many people in the Protestant faith who are just as lost as many people that are in the Catholic faith. They really don't know the reality of being born again. They don't know that the kingdom is within you and that our life needs to revolve around the king. And so there are nominal Catholics, there are nominal Protestants. There are Protestants that believe from one total opposite extreme to the other and some 10,000 different denominations of them. But there'd be 438 of them in your community of 3,500. Okay, right below that, we've got 248 Buddhists. We've got 234 animus or folk religion. I'll just put animist. I think that covers it. That would be the folks involved in voodoo in Haiti. That would be the, the Native American Indians, many of them. It would be the, um, uh, the folks in Ivuna, their traditional religions, African religions around the world. So you'd have 234 of them that are there. You would have seven Jews. In 3,500 people community, there would be only seven Jews. <laughs> they dominate the world in the food industry and the banking industry, though. You wouldn't believe how many foods you eat every day that are kosher approved to meet the needs of those seven, of which only probably half of them could care less whether it's kosher approved or not. Now, here's the last one I want to put here. In your community of 3,500 people, you are the only Anabaptist. And that's being very liberal. That's including the most liberal of the Mennonite groups added to the Amish, the conservative Mennonites, the Hutterites, and the Brethren groups. Throw them all together in one bundle, and in 3,500 worldwide, there's going to be one of you in that village. One of you. Do you have a job on your hands? Do you have something to do to be occupied until he comes? What in the world are you doing? What are you doing about these individuals? Who many of them very, very definitely, they die, they go to hell. What in the world are you doing? To try to alleviate Satan's rule of darkness. You know, uh, some of you know I have Bible studies. I have Bible studies with Muslims and Catholics up in Pottsville. And <clears throat> I don't know which one's darker, to be honest with you. As I 
have now been five years at least involved in pretty regular Bible studies with Catholic men who know absolutely nothing. They're in church every week. They've been in church every week almost their entire life, but know absolutely nothing about what the Bible says. They just don't know. That's disheartening. That's disheartening. 2.2 billion Christians in the world, but 1.2 billion of them are Roman Catholic. And I distinctively separated the two for the purpose of seeing that don't take strength in numbers. If you count everybody that professes to be Christian, we're the largest group in the world. But don't take strength in numbers because these groups are dwindling. They're dwindling. And there are many there that don't want to be there. They're just there. And they are getting less. These groups are strengthening and growing. Will we take an active role in occupying for the kingdom's sake? I think I mentioned a Muslim threat, and I don't know if I ever expressed completely what it is, but I'd like to right now just give you an idea what that Muslim threat really is. Just looking at the top level, 822. You know, we hear much in, in news and current events about ISIS. Maybe you've heard about Boko Haram in Nigeria, another uh, very terroristic group. And unprecedented thing happened. ISIS and Boko Haram have joined forces. That, that just doesn't happen in radical Islam world. Okay, so they have joined forces. There's another one that's even more radical and almost dreaded by those two, and that's called Daesh, that's working in Syria and just is unreasonable in what he's doing. Al-Qaeda has not gone away. The Al-Houthi, inspired by the Iranians, are still working hard in Yemen and other places for taking over those countries. And so we have this picture of Muslims as wild-eyed Arabs. But they are the major minority, though violent, ruthless, raging, and very, very much publicized. Very much publicized. Let me tell you about the majority of Muslims, though, who are not Muslim, who are not Arabs. They are not from the Arabian Peninsula. Some of them really don't speak Arabic very well at all, which is unique to me because they don't really believe in translating the Quran in other languages. And so they are Muslims, but they can't read their own book. And if they have a copy translated, it's considered a corrupt thing. So they might read it. So they have a clue, but they know they can't verify that this is actually Allah's word because it's been translated. In Indonesia, the largest group of Muslims in the world, 224 million. The next largest group is Pakistan, 190 million. The next largest group is going to probably surprise you because we've already talked about the Hindus and the Sikhs in India. Islam is only about 12% of the Indian population, but the Indian population is so huge that makes them the third largest group of Muslims in the world, located in India, with 163 million Muslims. What is the problem? I want to say that I believe that the real problem with Muslim relationships and us in the U.S. is a clash of two cultures. The Eastern Muslim religious culture, and the Western humanistic culture. Now, probably made reference to this before sometime. You have to excuse me. As the hair gets grayer, sometimes I repeat myself. But Brother John and I were standing in a marketplace in Zanzibar, which is an island completely Muslim, 
and uh, man come up to us and want to know if, if we are Christian. And he was an older man. And I was in the middle of buying spices and John was talking to him a little bit. And his English was a little broken. But his message was clear. Oh, you must become a Muslim. If you don't become a Muslim, you are nothing but firewood for hell. That was his plea to us. And I'm thinking to myself, I should be saying this to him. We traveled on a boat from the mainland to Zanzibar. Now, keep in in mind, before I was a Christian, I managed a TV and appliance store. And we had a video club, including X-rated garbage. And there's not a whole lot you're going to shock me with seeing. But the worst R-rated violent film I've ever seen was on that boat going from mainland to Zanzibar. Foul language. Immodest scenes. And just blow them up, shoot them up, kill them any way you can. That was the movie. The whole way across. Absolute Hollywood trash. Okay? And the Muslims around us were laughing. But one old Muslim got a hold of us when we got off the boat and says, why are you Americans always killing each other? Because that's his perspective of what Christianity is. What he saw in that movie was his exposure to what Christianity is. And they get indoctrinated all over the East. Beware of those Western people. And if I believed that that's what Christianity was, I'd hate it as bad as they do. I would hate it equally as bad as they do. And I come to the conclusion as I came back and tried to share this with people, and some people really react strongly to me, that we love to hate each other. We Westerners love to hate them, and they love to hate us, and we just kind of like that relationship. It's pretty easy. Hate's easy. It really is. Love takes some, some effort. But hate is easy. But I'd like to challenge us today that as conservative Anabaptists, we have opportunities to work with Muslim people that this group will never have because of their past that they're not willing to acknowledge was wrong. The major slaughter of Muslims over the years that they're not willing to acknowledge we should have never done. This one equally guilty of the same. But because of even the groups of evangelical Protestants who would say that, yes, we have a burden to reach Muslims, they won't reach Muslims for one reason. Culture. There are some things that as conservative Anabaptists we have that are opportunities. The Muslims believe in family in a way that most of us can't grasp. Abdul from Yemen up in Pottsville, he's been in this country for 25 years every day. He calls his brothers in Yemen. Every day he talks to them. His married children live in Yemen. Every day he speaks to his married children in Yemen. During this horrible war that's going on, they worked hard and got his grandson, who's only three years old, shuttled out of the country, and he now is taking care of his grandson in the absence of the parents who did get across to Djibouti. But uh, life is not easy. Family, family is so important to them. He owns a house in the city where family lives. He owns a house in the country where they have fled to and live now in the village. 
But this man has not been there for 25 years or more. But he maintains those things for the sake of family. And so they come to the West and they see the breakdown of family and the breakdown of marriage and say, you people, you don't have a right. And you know what? They're more right than we are. The second one is modesty. During Desert Storm, some well-meaning evangelicals got a hold of some young ladies and led them to Jesus and also led them to disveil, cut their hair short, put on makeup and jewelry, put on skin-tight blue jeans, and their fathers and brothers would have killed the people that led them to do that if they could have. How would you feel if they did that to your daughters? And then they're enlightened. You're not going to convince them that way. And so there's an appreciation for modesty, for veiling, for submission, for many, many principles that we Anabaptists take for granted. And let's face it, in our struggles of finding out who we are, sometimes shrug them off and say they really don't matter. Mistake. Mistake. If you want to occupy until he comes, the biggest group of people you have a chance to either draw close to, to be able to help, gain their confidence, or alienate by the decisions we make in life. You say, well, that's my business. Yes, it is. But guess what? You have to answer to the king someday. What did you do with the pound that he gave you? You have to answer. The real Muslim threat are not the radicals. The real Muslim threat are the masses. This mass number. Today, in North America, between Canada and the United States, there's 10 million. Okay, that's many times more than all the Anabaptists in North America. 10 million Muslims living here now. And it's growing fast. The real Muslim threat are not radicals that are going to come and And take off your head. The real Muslim threat is just their growth. It's not an ulterior plan that somebody has sat down in Muslim world headquarters and come up with. But it is what happens and has happened repetitively. And all we got to do is study Europe. And we're usually about 15 years behind them on most trends. And here's what's happened in Europe. First, they immigrate. They're fleeing instability. So we're not talking about the radicals. A few of them sneak in too. But we're talking about lots of people who just want to be able to have a way of caring for their family and have a a loving home where they feel safe and secure and it's not going to be blown up in the middle of the night. And so they're fleeing the insecurity of their countries and coming here. Secondly, they populate. Did you never notice something? Muslims are not afraid to have children. They're not afraid to have children. And that goes with family. They think family's great. So the more the merrier. Now, Muslims that come to America can't practice polygamy openly. But in the loose moral society that we live in, the man will come with his wife and her two friends. And so there are Muslim men here in America that have four wives and are having children with four wives because our loose moral code allows for that. Yeah, if you want to have children with your wife's friends, that's okay too. It's sick, but that's where we're at as a nation. If we can 
condone homosexual marriage, which when that day that got got um, accepted in the state of Pennsylvania, I happened to be at Abdul's shop that night. I said, uh, he said to me, he says, what do you think of this? Now, somehow he realized that I probably wouldn't appreciate that. He recognized that there's something different about us as we're coming into his shop than the average person who professes to be a Christian that he bumps into daily. He said, in my country, you're caught with that. Off with the head. My country, you're caught cheating on your wife. The government brings a dump truck with stones and all the people stone you publicly for committing adultery. My country, a young man is caught with a woman he's not married to. He would be stripped to his waist and out on the streets, beaten with rods publicly in humiliation. My country, if there's a wallet laying on the street, doesn't belong to you and you pick it up, the first time you'll go to jail for three months. And we're not talking about the Ramada Inns that we have in Pennsylvania. And then the second offense, cut off your right hand. Okay, so they populate. They immigrate, they populate. The second thing is they're very much interested in being involved in politics. That's just naturally part of their belief system. They get involved in politics, so they get involved in legislating. They enter the political arena. And finally, by sheer numbers and involvement in politics, they dominate. So you have it. The four-step plan, the real Muslim threat. Immigrate, populate, legislate, and dominate. And if you want to see it, just try to find out what you can about Dearborn, Michigan today. My Yemani friends tell me it's little Yemen. They just smile when they think of Dearborn, Michigan. What a lovely place. It's little Yemen. But going into Dearborn, Michigan, you can see a green and white highway sign that says you are entering an area of Sharia law. You better know what it is, and you better keep it. Today in Michigan, there are more representatives that are Muslim than non-Muslim in their House of Representatives. That is the Muslim threat. And they're decent people. I uh, do some butchering for them from Pottsville. They come down. And their last holiday here was Adha, and uh, we killed two sheep and a goat, and butchered them for them. And the first time I got to meet the, the man who I'd killed goats for before, but I never met him. He's a surgeon from Pakistan. And so had a nice interaction with him. Found out something unique about surgeons, though. He couldn't stand the sight of blood. Um, when we killed the goat, and... They slit the throat and the blood squirted out in every direction. We thought, okay, he's a surgeon. We're going to leave and let him with the women and they can skin the goat till we go get the sheep. So we went to get the sheep and we come back. The doctor is standing over looking at my garden with his back towards the goat. <laughs> and the women are standing there like, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> we didn't know how to take the skin off. And I said, what's with that? I said, come on now. Being a doctor is not that much different than being a butcher. Yes, it is, he said. It's very different. <laughs> so I said to him, you're right. It is different. When you doctors make a mistake, you bury it. When we make a mistake, we grind it. 
And he laughed and laughed and laughed. So we had a good time with the Pakistani surgeon. And I'm sure that Pottsville, all hospital, the hospital all heard about what butchers do with their mistakes. How important is Muslim evangelism? I'm going to tell you what. It is the hardest and most challenging thing I've ever done. It is. But it's also very worthwhile. And we don't know if it's rewarding, but let's face it. I've been called to occupy until he comes. I've not been called to look for ease, to look for comfort. It's nice to be able to go to people that are just begging for the gospel, but guess what? They're getting less and less in the world that we're living in. And that doesn't mean we don't have a job to do. We still have a job to do, and it's an undone and unfinished task. And it was given by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and it's not time to stop. We need to be busy, and we need to be at it. And I'm not saying we all have to jump on the Muslim bandwagon. What we have to do is find out where does God want me to be operating in his kingdom to reach the lost, Whatever is the cost. That was the goal of the early Christians. Now let's bring this down to perspective. That looks so overwhelming to me. These numbers look baffling to me. And especially think I'm the only one. That just, it's hard to grip. But you know that if you and I, let's just say there's 200 people here. If there were 200 people here and we all agreed that we're going to make it our goal that in one year, each one is going to win one person, just one, that would give us 400 next year, right? And you know, by the end of 10 years, there would be 102,400 people if we all agreed that our vision is to each one in one year, just reach one. And do you know that in 27 years... More people than are in the entire world would be reached by just starting with these 200 who agree that each one will win one. Matter of fact, the number comes to 13,421,772. Yes, 13,421,772,800 could be reached in 27 years if you started with 200 people who each had a vision to each one win one. Does that look overwhelming? One? Just one? Well, we won't know. And we won't gain anything if we don't try. And so our encouragement today is be encouraged. Be encouraged in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised to be with us until he comes. He has given us commands, but he has not forsaken us, but granted us grace to fulfill and to do his will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning's hour for your faithfulness. We thank you that Jesus Christ is alive and he is well and he is sitting at the right hand of thy throne. Father, we are glad that the day will come when all of his enemies will be made his footstool. But Father, you have given us work to do and we pray that you would also grant us strength, grant us vision, grant us burden. Maybe that work is prayer. Maybe that work is Uh, just reaching out to our next-door neighbor. Maybe that work is going far, far away to a people that are untouched, unreached. But whatever that work may be, that we would be found faithful, that when you come, we could throw up our hands and with rejoicing say, Yes, Jesus, I am so glad that you have come today. 
Father, let us live lives with no regret, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.